Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate Word, we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that Word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write it on their hearts, your holy law, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's Word to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. It'll also be good for you to keep your bulletins handy so you can refer to uh, that portion of the Athanasian Creed that we confessed together. So John chapter 14, and I'll read the whole chapter. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. This is Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father. And the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but my Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, I chose to read that because of the, the nature of the three persons of the Trinity that are taught so clearly uh, in John 14, and Jesus gives us a window into how those persons of the Trinity relate to one another. Um, and we're continuing our, our thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity using the Athanasian Creed as our guide to help us think about the, the Holy Trinity um, and try to understand something of the mystery to know what it is that we confess and how we can draw comfort from who God is and how he's revealed himself to us. Um, and so last time we looked at uh, the three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw how each of them has the attributes of God. Uh, each person is uncreated, incomprehensible, eternal, and almighty. Each person is himself Lord and God. Um, and yet there are not three uncreateds, three immeasurables, three eternals, three almighties, but one um, uncreated, immeasurable, eternal, and almighty. There are not three lords or three gods, but one Lord and one God. Um, and we, we noted that just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or three lords. Um, now, that was tough enough for us to understand, um, how they are all three individually God, but not three gods, but one God. Um, and so we, we thought about that as we thought about the Trinity. And as we continue to think about the Trinity, we then want to ask, well, if they all share these same qualities as true and eternal God, are there any differences between the persons? Um, are there things that mark them out differently from one another? Right? We, we, we want to say clearly the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. The glory is equal. The majesty is co-eternal. Um, but are there any differences that God has revealed to us? Any ways that we can understand the individual persons of the Trinity um, in ways that they don't share ideas? And so we want to say, yes, they all share the same divine characteristics, but there are also personal differences in each person of the Trinity. Things that you can say about the Father that you can't say about the Son and that you can't say about the Spirit. Um, and we want to think about those, so that's why I, I titled our sermon this evening, Personal Differences. Um, maybe when we think about personal differences, it means conflict we're having with other people. Um, here, there are perfect personal differences that are in complete harmony with one another. 
uh, the differences of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which help to round out our understanding of who our God is. To understand the, the, the total equality of the persons when it comes to the glory and the majesty of the divine, um, but the differences in each person of the Trinity that are revealed in Scripture. And so we want to think about the differences of their personal properties and the differences of their personal work. I know that if you're boys and girls, we've been tracking the points of the sermon. I haven't been as clear lately in the evening as what the points are, but there's my two points for the evening. The personal properties and the personal work of our God. Uh, The personal properties, sections 21 to 23 of the Athanasian Creed speak about the personal properties of each person of the Holy Trinity. Um, We see the personal properties of the Father in section 21, where we confess that the Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. And so the, the first personal property, we say, is fatherhood. Um, the Father is the fountain of all. Uh, the Father from all eternity actively begets the Son and actively sends the Spirit. So the Father is the great actor of all things. That's how He's revealed to us in Scripture. He's the fountain of all things. Everything comes from Him. He's the one who, who begets the Son. He's the one who sends the Spirit. He's the one who brings creation about, as we'll see. He is neither begotten nor proceeding from any. He is not made by any. Um, all things begin in the Father. That's the wonderful truth we confess about our Father. That's, that's the profound statement we're making when we say He is neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Father is revealed to us in Scripture as being before all things. And all things come from Him. Uh, we can think of John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the great, the great testimony to the Son coming into the world. But there we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so we're, we're taught here clearly that Jesus is God, but there was a God with Jesus as well. Uh, that's why it can be kind of confusing, those words. Um, and some people twist those words to try, to try to smooth it out. But the reality is Jesus was there with the Father. And when he comes, he says, I come to reveal the Father. That's how John attributes the work of the Son coming in the world, to make known that God who was before all things. Uh, who brought all things forth. Uh, We read in John 1, 14 and 18, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. There is a, a Father in heaven who is the fountain of all things. Everything flows from him. That's the personal property that belongs to the Father and to the Father alone. So, if fatherhood is the first personal property, you can probably guess what the second personal property is, and that's sonship. Right? The first personal property is the Father, the second personal property is of the Son. We read in, in 
section 22 of the creed, the Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. From all eternity, the Son is begotten of the Father and actively sends the Holy Spirit. That's what's unique about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not made or created either. He is true and eternal God. He has been from all eternity. Um, He has been eternally begotten of his Father. Now, the Son is not begotten of the Spirit. He's begotten of his Father. He sends the Spirit. And that's how we're to think of uh, the Son. He is neither made nor created, but he was begotten from the Father alone. So we have fatherhood and we have sonship. Um, The third one maybe is a little harder to anticipate. Uh, What might we say of the Holy Spirit? As it's set forth in section 23, the Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so the third personal property of the Trinity we often call procession. That the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. He proceeds from the Son, um, but he is neither made nor created nor begotten. He is proceeding. Um, And that's what we saw in John chapter 14. That's how Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, who is sent by the Father. So we saw in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, Jesus there clearly teaches that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Um, A chapter later, Jesus will say, the Spirit also proceeds from me. Um, John 15, 26, Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's why we said the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is eternally proceeding from them, but he is neither begotten nor made of either. These are the ways in which the personal properties of the persons in the Trinity are different. Um, And what we want to do, make sure that we do, is to maintain the personality of the Holy Spirit. It's easy to see why someone who is a father is a person and son is a person, but spirit is harder. We talked about that last time, didn't we? That the spirit is harder to think of as a person, but we have to keep doing that. And what we've read from God's Word and what we continue to see about the Spirit as He's presented the Word, He comes to us in a very personal way. He does very personal things. How is the Holy Spirit presented to us? Well, He's presented to us in John 14 as a teacher, as a one who bears witness, as one who is a helper. Look again at verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Um, The spirit is a teacher. He's a helper. That's his particular job in the world. uh, To make the Lord known. Um, to speak intelligently to our hearts, uh, to make him known from his word. 
Uh, Jesus will say in John 16, verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. There's a sense in which the Holy Spirit comes to bear a divine report. To tell us what the Father has said. To tell us what the Son has said. Uh, to bear witness to the truth as proceeding from them. Uh, he comes from the Father and the Son to bear witness to us, to help us, to teach us, to lead us into truth. Um, and he also comes to help us in the midst of our weakness um, by bringing our requests and our needs before God. Those are the two ways in which the Holy Spirit helps us. He brings God to us, and he helps to bring our needs before God. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans, groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Um, there's a work that's going on in the Spirit for His people, right? To help them, to bring the Father and the Son to us in power and to carry us before the Father and the Son in glory. Now, how does that happen? Well, we're told it's, it's too deep for words. that It's beyond what we can truly understand. But it's a wonderful glimpse, isn't it, into the ways in which we are being helped in this world by our God, even that we're unaware of. Um, we understand and, and think a lot about the mediation and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ, but Paul teaches us in a profound way there is another, even though there's only one mediator, there is another interceder. There is someone else who is making intercession for us. And that's the Holy Spirit. There's help going on for the people of God in a personal way that's even beyond our tracing out. But we can be sure that the Spirit is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. Um, it, it's a blessing to think about what the Spirit is doing. is doing for God's people in those roles in addition to the other things that He's doing. Vitally connecting us to God. That's, that's the, 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 the great help that the Spirit does for God's people is to connect us to our God. Um, now, the Holy Spirit remains mysterious in many ways because His delight is not to point us to Himself. Uh, the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, and His delight is to point us back at the Father and the Son. Uh, his delight is to show forth Jesus and show forth the Father, he doesn't like to focus on himself. That's why I always come back in my own mind to J.I. Packer talking about the work of the Holy Spirit being like a cathedral in Toronto. And he said, at night it's lit up. There are big floodlights that shine on the cathedral. And the point of the floodlights are to illuminate the cathedral. And he said, what you don't do is go put your face into the floodlight to look at the floodlight. That's not what it's there for. It's not saying, look at me. It's saying, look at that. 
In many ways, that's why so much of the work of the Spirit remains mysterious, because he says, I'm not interested in you looking at me. I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to look at the Father. I'm interested in bringing you in fellowship with them. Um, That's his delight. That's what he is doing. That's why he's often called the, the sort of hidden person of the Trinity. Because he wants to showcase Christ. He wants to showcase the glory of the Father. Um, you sometimes get that as a question as a pastor that someone will come to you and say, is it okay if we pray to the Holy Spirit? Um, and, you know, various reasons for that question, I think, sometimes. But I think the Athanasian Creed can help us here. Is, is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Is it okay to pray to God? Yes. Hopefully everyone knows that. If you don't, write it down. It's okay to pray to God, right? That's, that's what true prayer is, praying to the true God. But do we really see a lot of prayer to the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures? How does, how does Jesus teach us to pray? He teaches us to pray to the Father in His name. And so maybe sometimes we can say, well, then where is the Holy Spirit in the prayer? If I'm praying to the Father and I'm praying in the name of Jesus, where, where is the Holy Spirit? And I like what one Reformed scholar said, the Holy Spirit is more the author than the object of our prayer. Where is the Holy Spirit in your prayer? He's the one motivating you to pray. He's the one writing the prayer. He's the one working in you and with you and for you, uniting you to the one to whom you pray. He's very much there when we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. He's dwelling in us. He is the author of those prayers. He's illuminating our hearts to the Lord and the Lord to us. It's a wonderful Trinitarian activity that we engage in when we pray. We pray to the Father in the Son's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, He is not absent. He's just not interested in being the center of the show. He always wants to make Christ the focus and the Father who sent him. So these are the differences in, in each of these persons of the Trinity, and we can understand them in part. Uh, but these relationships, as we've been described, as they've been described to us, are different than the way we typically understand some of these things, because these relationships are eternal and abiding. Uh, these relationships have always been in the Godhead. Uh, they are eternal. Um, we have we we are using terms that we have some analogy for in our world, right? Father and Son, and even procession. We can kind of understand how someone proceeds from someone else, how someone is sent by someone else. We can kind of understand those things. But the the challenge that we have is that there's a time where you aren't these things and you become these things. right? If you're a father, there was a time that you weren't a father and then you became a father. Um, And us as children, right? there was a time we we weren't and then we became children. Uh, We became sons. Uh, Those relationships have a beginning, uh, they start at a particular point in time. And those relationships for us are time-bound and are constantly changing. Right? My, 
my, my relationship to my father when I was a teenager is different than my relationship with my father now. Um, he would probably tell you I'm a better sort of person now. A lot easier to manage and deal with now. Um, those relationships change. They're in flux, right? We're, we're, we're always changing. The nature of that relationship changes. But when we talk about those things in the divine Godhead, they've always been this way. There's never a time that, that the father became a father. He's always been the father. He's eternally the father. There's never a time that the son became the son. He's always been the son. He's eternally begotten of his father. There was a time he took on a human flesh and came in the world. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about his eternal sonship with the Father. He's eternally begotten of his Father. There was never a time when that relationship started. He's always been the Son of his Father. Eternally begotten. And the Spirit has always been proceeding from the Father and the Son. These relationships are eternal. They are abiding. And that's important lest we think that one person is greater than the other or one person is lesser than the other in the Trinity. That's what, that's what we are to avoid in thinking about the Godhead. The Father is not greater than the Son because the, Father sent, because the Son is begotten of the Father. They are all co-equal God. That's why sections 25 and 26 of the Creed are so important to bring out that scriptural truth that none in this trinity is before or after, none is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. The Father is not before the Son, and the Son is not greater than the Spirit. They are all co-eternal and co-equal. Um, and we can understand something of the relationship of Father and Son by the human analogy, but we shouldn't make the mistake um, of thinking greater or lesser. Um, but we see how God, in his wisdom, gave us an analogy in creation that we can learn from. Um, it, it's no coincidence, is it, that the God who is the Father from all eternity and has a Son from all eternity makes people in his own image to be parents and to bring forth children. Right? We have an eternal Father who has an eternal son, and he created people in his image to have their own children. And that was his design, to be a reflection of who he is as part of the image-bearing nature of humanity, right? Genesis 9.1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Earthly parenthood is a faint reflection of the fatherhood of our God in the world that he's made. And what makes fatherhood so comforting, what makes his fatherhood so comforting, is he never had to begin to learn to be a father. Right? Occasionally, I'm the oldest in my family, so occasionally my, my parents will say to me, we had to experiment on you. Um, because we were trying to figure out how to be parents. Right? So we made mistakes with you that we tried to correct as it came to the other kids. So... If you ever feel like I'm damaged, that's why. I've been experimented on by my parents, right? Um, and because they would say, like any, like any parents, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to learn what to do. Um, you know, they give you this kid, you take them home, and then they're your responsibility. Um, those things we have to learn. One of the great comforts that comes from Scripture is God doesn't have to learn how to be a father. God has always been a father. 
That's who he is by his nature. He's a God who cares for, brings forth, and cares for what he's brought forth, who moves what he's brought forth to the destiny he's planned for it. That's who he is at his core being, a father. And that's what Jesus is trying to reveal to us in the world. That's what Jesus comes in the world to do, to say, you need to understand what this father is like. Um, that's why you know, we, we can joke about the mistakes that, some, that all fathers make, and there are some fathers that are terrible fathers. And when it comes to someone being learning about the fatherhood of God, that can be a challenge to them because they never knew what it was to have a good earthly father. But the comfort that comes from our God is he knows what it is to be a father. He is everything a father should be. A father who loves his children and who gives everything for their good and doesn't hold back anything that his children need. And that's what Paul drives home for us in the book of Romans to say, our father looked on us and saw that we needed Jesus. And even though Jesus was the most precious thing he had, he didn't hold him back. He gave him up for us all because as a father, he knew that's what his children needed. That's the kind of God we have. And that's the encouragement that the apostle gives us to say, if he's that kind of father who will not hold back from his children the greatest thing that he has to give you, why would you worry that he'll hold back lesser things like food or clothing, or the other things that you need for life in this world and in the next? Does anything about him say that he's a closed-fisted God who doles out simply the bread and water needed? No, he's a, he's a generous God. He's a wonderful father. This is, the, this is the glory of what we confess. He doesn't need to learn how to do it. He's a father by nature. He's the one that brings forth all things, cares for all things, sustains all things, and moves them to the end for which he's made them. That's why we, we confess not only the personal differences in the Godhead, but also that each of them has a divine work that they are particularly attending to. Now this gets a little bit beyond the creed, but I think it's always important to say when we are talking about the personal differences in our God, right? We, we talk about that in the catechism when we come to talking about the three persons in the Trinity and how the, the, uh, how the Apostles' Creed is divided up. That we say when we consider God the Father, we think particularly about his work in creation and providence. And when we think about the, the Son, we think particularly about his work in deliverance or redemption. And when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think particularly about his work in sanctification and that also tells us how each of the, the persons of the Trinity is principally concerned in one area, although not exclusively concerned. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Scripture teaches us to think of the Father as the fountain of all divine work. Everything that comes to us from God begins in the Father, but particularly in the work of creation. Now, He creates in the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, but his work is the work of creation. He's the one who, out of his almighty power, brought into the world out of nothing everything that is. And he's the one that's taking this everything that he's made and moving it towards the purpose he has for it. That means the whole of what he's made, no matter how big the things he's made in the cosmos or how small the things he's made under the microscope, everything that he's made, he's moving for a purpose. Particularly for the redemption of the children of God. He's moving all those things to the end that he has for them. Um, And that's the comfort that comes to us in all things, is that God, who is our Father rules in creation, rules in providence, assures us that all things will work together for our good. Right? That, that that's the good news of this world. It's not running off the rails. Um, it's, not, it's not out of control. It's actually under control of a faithful father. Um, and that's a wonderful thing for us to know. He's always performing the work of creation and providence. And that the Son particularly is concerned with the work of redemption. He is the one who is sent by the Father into the world, who comes into the world through the operation of the Holy Spirit to be a redeemer, who purchases his people from sin into the kingdom of God, who does that by sacrificing himself on the death on the cross to buy his people out of their slavery to sin. He is the great redeemer. That's the work that's particularly assigned to God the Son. Um, In God the Holy Spirit, the Scripture assigns him the work of sanctification. He's the one who brings that work to life in God's people. He's the one who implants newness of life in us, who regenerates us, who effectually calls us to follow Christ. He's the one who's conforming us to the image of Christ and uniting us to Christ who works by his word to bring us into a sure knowledge of who God is. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in each of these things, but the principal work is always attendant to one. And the Holy Spirit is particularly in charge of that work of sanctification, uniting us to Christ and perfecting us after his image. So much so that one person rightly put it, there is no communion with the Father and the Son except in and through the Holy Spirit. And so each is distinct. You can't combine them together. Uh, That's what's brought out in, in number 24 of the Athanasian Creed. There is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. They are each unique. They're personally different from one another. And yet they are all eternally one, united in their purpose, even if different in their persons. And that's what's driven home in 27 and 28. So in everything that was said earlier, the unity in the Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped, and anyone who desires to be saved should thus think about the Trinity. One of the great things about John 14 is that John says, all, Jesus says, all that we are doing, we are doing together. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father is doing, look to me. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And if you want to know what the Spirit is coming to do, think about what I've come to do. I've been a helper, he's going to be a helper. If you want to know who the Spirit is, he's the Spirit of Christ. In a sense, Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Spirit. You know what the helper is like. We are all one. Despite those personal differences, despite those unique features, despite all of those nuances, they are united in purpose. There's a oneness in perfect fellowship in the triune God. And wonderful thing that Jesus says in this passage is to say, not only are the three persons of the Trinity one in purpose for you, but he says, if you are in me, then you are in us. The glory of confessing these things, it's important to say this is the glorious God we serve, that there's always a purpose in saying that. But Jesus drives it home when he says, that perfection of fellowship that exists in the Godhead is to include you. The part of his purpose in coming into the world is to bring us into fellowship with that perfect fellowship. To bring us into oneness with that God who is perfectly one. So that we can know the peace and the joy of that kind of perfect personal fellowship. That's what Jesus prayed for. That's what he prayed for in John 17, 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may become one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I in them. Right? What is, you know, sometimes we read through that and we think, Jesus just keeps repeating these phrases and we can kind of get lost in the, I and them and you and me and, you know, what is the point of all of this? The point of all this is something wonderful and profound. People have taken this passage and said, well, see, this is clearly talking about we shouldn't have denominations. We should just have one church. And it should, maybe it should be the Pope's church. That couldn't be further from what Jesus is saying. He's something, some, something far more profound than just about some kind of earthly fellowship. He's talking about a profound sense in which we come into fellowship with this God who has always existed in perfect fellowship. So that they may be in you, that they would know that love with which you've loved me. That love that's been eternal and perfect and divine with all that means. 
that we would know that love and that we would be incorporated into that love, into that fellowship. Does that mean we, we become divine? Well, no, we can't become divine in that sense, but that shouldn't in any way diminish the punch of what Jesus says here. That we, we don't become divine, but we do become incorporated into that divine love, into that divine fellowship. So much so that Jesus can say that you would love them the way you love me. I don't know if there's anything that has power to bring us more comfort than to think about the Father loving us as much as he loves Jesus. That that's what Jesus prayed for. That's what we've been incorporated into by the divine work of our great creator, Father, and Redeemer, Son, and sanctifying Holy Spirit. Because his prayer is, has been granted. We don't have to wonder whether Jesus gets what he prays for. Uh, that prayer has been answered because of the death of the Son of God and his life and his rule and reign at the right hand of the, Son of, of the Father. We can know that this is the fellowship we enjoy now. That the Father loves us as much as he loves the Son and that we are one with God as much as the Father is one with the Son. It's a glorious gift that God has given us in Christ Jesus. That we should be, people like us, should be incorporated into that kind of fellowship. Is a grace we will spend all eternity thanking God for and still not do it justice. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are staggered by our Lord's prayer and by the glory of the fellowship that the triune God enjoys and to think that we are incorporated to know something of that love and that peace and that fellowship. We confess that it's a grace far more than we can even really understand um, and certainly far more than we have deserved. Help us, Lord, to be thankful for this great gift. Help us to go out and live lives in this world in the confidence to know that you love us that you are satisfied, um, that satisfied in the death of your Son for all the sins that we've committed, that you have brought us into perfect fellowship with you through him and through the Spirit who you sent. Help us to go forward in this week knowing the joy of having that fellowship with you. And might it fill us with gratitude so that we would live lives of service to you in thanksgiving for all the grace that you've showered upon us. Thank you for these gifts. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And ask, Father, that you would hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.